0: Welcome to Meet the New Boss, a riveting podcast series exploring how business leaders make their way in the world and how music has influenced who they have become. Here are your hosts, Vince Catanzaro and Jeff Niebuhr. Yeah. Welcome to another episode of Meet New Boss. This is Jeff Niebuhr. With me, as always, is Vince Catanzaro. Vince Catanzaro. How are you doing this week? Great, Jeff. How about yourself? I'm awesome. It's actually kind of a gloomy, rainy evening here in Alpharetta, Georgia. Uh, But I had a great weekend down at Lake Martin, beautiful Lake Martin, Alabama, celebrating the graduation of... Uh, my nephew from college had a bunch of family down there he went to a lot of people call it the harvard of east alabama auburn university the greatest school on the face of the planet and so we were down there and had a great visit with family and celebrated his uh his graduation he's got a job a lot of kids graduating college don't get a job right off he's already got one with one of the world's greatest company, Amazon. He's an industrial engineer, and he's going to go work at Amazon in Memphis. Wow! He has no idea what he's going to be doing. His response to all my detailed questions are, "Amazon is going to train me." <laughs> but our perception is they work them to death. It's almost like a boot camp—70, 70, 75 hours a week. Yeah, it's a unique culture. Exponentially up at Christmas time, 24/7. I think it's a tough job. I hope he makes it. Um, I think he gets a bonus to sign. He gets a bonus at a year. And then if he stays there three years, all his options vest. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they know the game. Um, but I, everybody's hoping he makes it at least a year and gets that uh, experience. It'll be awesome. Yeah.
1: it's a So I worked for a company that moved its headquarters to Seattle. And we ended up um, recruiting several Amazon. I talked to a lot of people from Amazon and it's a very unique culture. So, you know, they, um, people either dig it and stay and go for the ride on the equity, <laughs> or they're like, it's not worth it, and I'm out of here.
0: Out of here. Well, I think it's, uh, you know, he's like a Birmingham guy, so probably a good thing he's in Memphis. What else is he going to do? He's got, he's got no friends, he's going he's gonna to work. He could uh, stupid. They know, he they know know walk,
1: walk in on uh, in Beale Street, right? Oh,
0: Take yeah. the off that's the ground. It's a, a great music town. Well, so uh, another generation uh, turns over and, uh, and joins the workforce. It's great, it keeps the world moving. Um, I think we want to talk this week a little bit, and miss may get into a little generational um, conversation, but. Um, as the vaccine is rolling out and there's a bit of a COVID fatigue and companies want to get back into the, the scheme of things, I think that we're going to see this summer uh, the rise of the return to the office. And I want to, I think I we talked about, I'd like us to think about how does that look? How, what are some different options? Um, I mean, part of the purpose of our show is to help bosses not just be like the old boss. We want bosses to be awesome and stellar and great. And so this is an opportunity for bosses across the country, me and you included, to think about how, what is the impact that they have on their uh, their workforce as they transition from a r- largely remote workforce. M- most of corporate America, I think, went remote last year, unless, you know, if the jobs were able to be saved right lots of jobs furloughed and then eliminated terribly lots of businesses uh shut down um but in corporate america i think we're possible they went remote and then now we here here we are a year and a half later uh thinking about how do we kind of get back into a new normal and so i wanted to get your thoughts what do you think that looks like do you are you as you're talking um with leaders i know you do every day leaders in the industry and um are they talking about going back to work yet, or how's that? How does that sound to you?
1: Yeah, so the I think there's a, a few different camps in there. One camp is the the big company that you know spent you know five hundred million dollars on a corporate campus or a billion dollars on a corporate campus, and they now have all this beautiful real estate that's not being used, and they're saying to themselves, "We want people back in the office to use yeah, cause this want. fantastic building that we've that's right. got here." Um, and so, uh, one of my big customers is, is, uh, bringing people back. So starting May, so starting now, they are, are able to go back voluntarily. So if you wanted to work in the office, you can go back into the office. And then in September, they're talking two to three days in the office. Um, yep. the smaller companies. So
0: voluntary during the summer, this is yep. summer of 2021 and then mandatory, Two to three days in the office.
1: Yep, in the fall, kind of at the back end of Labor Day. So, uh, but yeah. I think the smaller companies are uh, are good with staying at home. I know all the tech people that I talk to. Yeah, you know, I haven't talked to a tech leader that's like, I am looking to go back into the office. Um,
0: even upper management. Even upper management. Yeah, they don't. That's want to interesting, go back. isn't it?
1: They don't want to go back, and the, and the. Uh, but people clearly are going back to work because there is definitely uh, a rush hour in Atlanta now. So that is. Oh
0: really? That yeah. you've noticed that the uh, yeah, traffic yeah. patterns have picked up. Atlanta was a tolerable city for the for the last year. It was great. There's plenty <laughs> of parking. You can get across town. I saw a thing before the COVID. It said uh, Atlanta is two hours from Atlanta. <laughs> that's funny to me, because it was. If you wanted to go anywhere in rush hour, it was two or three hours. Not quite as bad as L.A. I've been in L.A. and this miserable, but Atlanta's share. But it, it went away, but you're saying it's back.
1: Yeah, quick antidote on traffic. So, do you remember the uh, the movie Cannonball Run? I don't know if you've ever saw that yes, movie way back course. in the day. Based on a true yes. story. The first, the first time they organized it, I think it was maybe in Car and Driver Magazine, The one of the... Uh, Riders, a car and driver, organized it. And it was from a hotel in New York to a hotel in uh, L.A. or San Diego, something like that. And the and there was all these people that were supposed to show up and do it, but no one showed up. So he did it by himself. And you know he documented oh, really? the whole thing, wrote the story about it. And so then every year oh, it started great- to grow. And then it started to grow too big and they canceled it. But uh, there was like um, all these different records, and like you know, I think the original time was like sixty something hours or whatever it was. And you know, a couple of years ago, these uh, a college kid, very organized, using you know all technology, traffic patterns, right. all that kind of stuff, yep. did it in like thirty-seven hours. And yeah. then like last summer that record was shattered like 15 times over because there was no one on the highways, no traffic. So people were just zipping across the country.
0: That's great. That's great. Good for them. So I, my experience, um, the company I'm working with right now, we did, we bought a, we built out a brand new office like February of 2020. (laughs) It's awesome. And then nobody was in it for months and months. And, um, senior leadership started coming back maybe last fall even and now it's it's going to be a weird situation because we're hiring some folks and the newer people we're hiring we in the interview say hey you know we're pretty much we got this great office we're pretty much going to be back in the office and so it's going to be like senior leadership and new hires and then all the you know kind of medium-run folks that have been there for some time uh, of course, it's a technology company, and they're very comfortable, as you said, working from home. Uh, I, I heard something funny about the work from home. Uh, and it, it was, this is a great company. You can work from home two days a week, Saturdays and Sundays. Every, every, every week you can work from home. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> so, you know, the technology, folks, uh, you know, it cuts both ways. Uh, if you're in tech, in general, you are on call 24-7 even if you're a developer and you think you've kind of escaped that orbit um if there's if there's a problem they're gonna come find you so i think you're right so i i have some thoughts about um you know there's three kind of ways or hybrid kind of things i'm thinking about um a full-time work right everybody comes back on you know september 1st 2021 where everybody's gonna be in the office just be like it was and then more of a hybrid, some in, some working from home. This is something you described here, two to three days kind of thing, and then a third is, hey, we learned our lesson with COVID. It's it we can be just as productive, maybe more productive, with a satellite kind of office space, but pretty much everybody working from home. Uh, I, that's what I want to talk about because I think that that's what I would recommend. I think I think that. Um, I think that there's a time and place for people to be together and face to face. And I think that that could be arranged. Uh, But I think one thing that we discovered during COVID is the uh, once you release the grip of the geographic requirement that we're all co-located, a couple of things happen. The first thing is people don't waste as much time getting ready and going to work (laughs) you know i've been in several companies during this this kind of period as well and some are very video centric and some are not and so i i I think i've seen where there's like a video centric group even that bounces into a non-video group and the non-video group people are kind of eyeing me hey man i'm not dressed i'm not you know i can't go on video if that's the expectation and so those people have decided I'm going to get dressed later on after work or maybe at lunch break or something. And so that's a lot of time in the morning for people to kind of get ready, as you said, traffic and get their kids out and, you know, all that. So I think that there's another aspect um, in the in the not just the productivity of saving time, but i've experienced this myself when i'm working from home when some people that i know are working from home their hours increase a little bit i think there's like this kind of myth or whatever that oh how can you really tell if they're working from home i'm like give them more work (laughs) you know they everybody should have more than 40 hours of work a week so that they're forced to prioritize and they're never they don't have really tons of downtime. and in fact i can see the folks that are really conscientious workers, they get a lot done and, you know, hours for me, hours is not the, the issue. Well, what are your thoughts on that? What is, what's your, ex, you know, expectation? Well, I, uh,
1: well, I've seen, I can tell you, I've seen candidates who won't go back into the office, right? That they feel mm-hmm. that there's this opportunity now if their company is forcing them to go back, that they can find um, work from home. And, and I think from a candidate perspective, from the recruiting side, that's really opened up searches to be much broader because you now you don't have to worry so much about traffic, right? Because everyone's kind of figured out, hey, how do I, uh, how do I pull this off? Well, we know how to do it, and you know right. the the leaders I talk to really want the best candidates, not necessarily the ones that are going to come into the office. So I think there's a little bit of that there. I do think people work. Longer hours working from home, right? Because they're just
0: yeah, the good it was, people at least. Yeah, right. they, they
1: plug in, they're good to go, and 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 they're now established a, a their workspace. So, like even myself working from home, um, have set up mm-hmm. uh, a functioning office space. That yep. I when I'm you know when I used to work from home, I'd just be opening up my laptop on the couch or the kitchen table and working on the single screen and 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 you know. With that came some less effective methods than when you're working multiple right. screens and you have your desk set up and you have your paper in front of you and all those kind of things. But now when I need to do something at home, I just go to my office space and crank up the computer and I have multiple screens and I'm fully functional to work fast and efficient right. out of the house. So I think that's been a big change. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens with office space too because now, uh, you know, all the office space that's going to be empty uh, needs to be converted. Like, so there's, you know, yeah, there's what's going to be, gonna like, happen to it? Big real estate shift, right? They got to, to convert that to residential or some other, some sort of other use, right?
0: Yeah, so, uh, so you owned, if you owned a bunch of uh, office real estate, I would be very, I, like, I think there's like a COVID blanket where people have been paying this whole time and, and the government, I think, probably steps in and helps out. But there's a day of reckoning, it feels like, um, where we may not have as much demand as we did in the past. Although, we'll see. It remains to be seen. I oh,
1: I think these next few years, right? So we're, you know, just past a year into it. So if, you, if you'd imagine the average office lease uh, for a mid sized company or larger is a seven-year type lease that, you know, mm-hmm. well, you know, over one-seventh of that now has cycled. Right. And out of that one yep. seventh there's probably a large percentage that hasn't renewed. And so when we get mm-hmm. another year and another year two sevenths, three yeah, sevenths. Yeah, yeah, all of a sudden that's gonna start adding up. And 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 maybe there's this whole trend of everyone going back into the office. Um but I don't think so. I think that there's gonna be yeah. uh, a good portion of folks who don't go back into the office um, and it changes everything for people, like you know, even from little things like uh, I, where I get my car serviced and get oil changes uh-huh. done and emission tests, right? Or, yeah. Right. I did that at a place that was close to my office, right? Because right. that's where I was during the day. Well, now I'm doing it at a place close to my home, right? So it's really changing the demographics and you know all, all sorts of impact on on the community that's going to end up having.
0: And even long term, would a you know, with your generic family of two workers with you know a couple of kids or whatever they need two cars or one car, really?
1: Right. I mean, do you have made I mean, less cars miles on the
0: road all day in the morning and afternoon, and it's pretty easy. Somebody can take them to school while the other one's working, and if someone needs to run errands at night, then you know, do you really need two cars anymore? I don't know. I want to dig in a little bit to the candidate because I think this is an area of expertise that you have is. Um, if companies can get candidates from anywhere in the US, because we now have this new view of remote workers, can they also not do that internationally? And then does that put downward price pressure, whether it's US or international, on some of these markets, and I'm thinking particularly of San Francisco, LA, New York, you know but you could probably throw in seattle chicago atlanta you know bigger cities those folks you know same job skills my guess is could command a premium salary being in those markets and people in lesser markets in rural america secondary thir- tertiary cities are uh, are they now more valuable their their value may be going up and maybe putting downward pressure on the folks on the coasts and these kind of elite, elite cities. What's your experience in, in that?
1: Yeah, I think you're hitting it right on. So uh, I've heard, right, and I haven't, you know, done research on this, but like in New York and in San Francisco, that there's somewhat of a, a mass exodus out of the inner city into the burbs, into mm. more affordable housing, um, you know, leaving that that real urban area. and And so – I haven't had customers say, hey, I'll take them anywhere in the world, right? Like, so if Mm -hmm. you find me the best of this, and if that person is in the Philippines, right, that's where they are. So it really hasn't hit international, but I do think that's coming, right? Companies have already – we've been doing that now for 20-plus years of outsourcing as businesses, either third-party relationships or opening up entities in foreign countries to establish businesses there. That have uh, um, lower labor costs, um, so I do think that there's going to be downward pressure on the big inner cities, where uh, home values, market values, pay values are going to start to come down some, and in other areas it's going to start to go up some, right? Because if you were in so it's Omaha, in
0: equilibrium, the... you think?
1: Yeah, I think there's a little bit of a flattening of that. Um, I don't know if that'll hold though. Who knows, right? Because all of a sudden, there could be a, 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 a some sort of an event or some sort of push or cultural shift, and all mm-hmm. of a sudden it shifts back the other way and skyrockets the other way.
0: I'm thinking of also like the um, the top engineer, right? AWS architect working for a hot firm in Silicon Valley or Seattle or New York, making what does that person make? Two
1: fifty, two fifty, two fifty, three hundred, yeah.
0: Plus a bunch of fun at the end of the year and all that, and and they during COVID said, man, I'm sick of living in my shoebox-sized two point four million dollar townhome. I'm going to move to Wyoming, and I'm going to buy a 50 acre ranch for 500 grand with a 3,000 foot square you know square foot house on and a pool, (laughs) and I'm going to live larger than I've ever lived. For one eighth the money, but I'm going to still keep my salary, right? Um, what happens to that person? Does the company continue to pay that big money even though their huge talent guy left and moved to, you know, Wyoming or Mississippi or wherever? That's a really good question.
1: I, like I saw that at companies where, you know, where people would be in the local market. But they're like, Oh, you know, so I took the opportunity to go spend a month on the beach and work from the beach. Right. Where they would not have normally been able to do that. No one knows the difference. What differences does it make? They're on Zoom calls or, or whatever. if right. they're doing their job, but you know, they for all we know, they could be, you know, in Brazil. You know, the uh, you just have to have, you know, stable internet. So I don't know the big ranch stable in Wyoming will right. will provide that. But the uh yeah, I mean you can really be for really be anywhere. It's really, it's really I think an interesting if I was time. in
0: charge of a small town in rural America. I would try to make sure I had Google Fiber in my town, and I would start advertising. If you have a big high-tech job that you can work remote, you come here. we we got the best Internet on the planet, and we have the cheapest place for you to live, and you know then tout all the awesome things about your small town. All right, why don't we uh, take a little break and we'll come back. Um, we'll talk a little music a little culture corner and wrap it up. How does that sound? Sounds great. So Vince, people are always coming up to me and they're saying, Jeff, how do you get a podcast? What's the magic? How do you even get started? And so what I always talk about is the product anchor. You know, we started this thing and we went in Google, what's the easiest way to get a podcast and like the top 50 results all said anchor. So we went out, and we learned a little bit more about it, and we discovered some really awesome parts about it. The first thing is it's free. It's absolutely free. Well, I mean, it gets
1: better than that, you know, because doing the whole process of recording and editing and just the, the creation of the podcast and the engineering, the app literally builds in how do you record it, how do you edit it. You know, you could record right on the, the platform and edit right on the platform and add music on the platform. So it ends up being uh, not only free, but
0: how you build the thing. And then the other thing, the next thing really was, how do we distribute it? How do we get it out to the all the, all the folks? And so from Anchor, you could do it almost anywhere through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and a bunch more. And it'll handle all the distribution, publishing was great. Well,
1: you know, Let's talk brass tacks. We're talking greenbacks, moolah, money. Yeah, that's where that's where it's at. So it literally is like a, like a banking app, right? You know, literally like all these banking apps that are out there It's really built into the into the platform. So it walks you through how do you monetize your podcast. Yep.
0: Yeah. It's everything you need really to make a podcast in one place. Well,
1: you know, I would tell all the listeners, go to anchor.fm that's anchor.fm. It's, uh, it's the best place to start podcasting.
0: Okay, all right. Welcome back. Uh, this is part two. Uh, we're on episode 20. There's something magical. Can't believe that. About 20. It's uh, double the double digits. So it's very exciting. Uh, we have, when we have guests, we kind of let the guests dictate the music but now that we're back to just me and you we were on a little bit of a tear there of number one songs by decade and we did the 50s we did the 60s and i think today is the 70s we had a brief conversation vince and i have dramatically different um outlooks on the music of the 70s and so i'll let you vince talk just a little you know you you wanted to do every year you wanted to have a a number song. song. Tell me a little bit about why the seventies is so attractive to you. And that's the, that's the greatest, greatest, uh, decade for you, maybe.
1: You know, I think it's probably just, um, you know, the influence of when music really became important to you and sunk in. Right. So uh, I've shared, I'm the youngest in my family and I'm, I believe I'm a few years older than you and uh and so like my sister and brother were you know and even like my mom were, were like you know fans of music in of the 70s and and you know I I view the 70s as the greatest decade of rock music that you know the pinnacle of rock music the 70s was the the apex and as we hit the 80s and you had punk and hair bands uh started streaming down and you went to grunge and it disappeared and uh you had to ramp up to the 70s which was the 50s and 60s and uh, and so if you kind of looked at it as a, a bell graph right you know the 70s are capturing the top of the bell bell chart all right yeah, that's all right. Yeah.
0: that's a great okay i'm going to give you my my take slightly different okay uh each movement of rock and roll starts with a bang and it's very raw it's fast it's guys in leather jackets that are kind of um punks even in the 50s you had elvis with the you know back then they got greasers right you had jerry lee lewis setting the piano on fire you had um uh, Chuck Berry playing guitar riffs, and you had real hard uh, drumming, right? The great drummers in the in the early in the early to mid fifties, and then people come in, record companies come in, and they make it all bubblegummy, poppy, and they smooth it out, and you get real kind of relax, the tempo slows down, <laughs> the vocals get kind of cleaner and better and you kind of get this bubblegummy poppy and they take over and then every 10 years or so somebody comes in with that hard snare, kick, drum back leather jacket fast, raw, rock and roll and the Beatles was that in the 60s and then the whole British evasion and it's just like if you look at what was on the charts in '60, '61, '62, it's all terrible. It's terrible, and they just cleared it off and said, "Nope, this is rock and roll." And then you had the Stones and everything in the late '60s. Man, in the '70s, it was like the same thing. Everything got more technical. There was more, there, you had to be a virtuoso guitarist. You had to be a virtuo. You had to have a 30 minute drum solo <laughs> you had to have well, actually, that's when you sold t-shirts yeah 47 47 keyboards and, and the guys playing them all and you had a gong behind the drummer and it was long and bloated and then the pinnacle of rock and roll comes again with the sex pistols one album never mind the Bullocks. here's the sex pistols that's got to be the album of the 70s but it's not going to be my artist of the 70s but clears it all away clears all the muck, reestablishes the connection between uh fan and music and then not to foreshadow too much but the next person that really did that was rap music that's my opinion then nirvana i don't know that it's yeah. happened since nirvana really. yeah it kind like, of died off so years the later
1: I absolutely agree with you in the concept that it it came out of garages, right? It was yeah. a group of, a group of kids that got together and made music, and you know, and and went for it. And and you're right, because then once once they once they've established, once they're no longer that that group of kids out of the garage, and the record companies get a hold of them then it then it becomes much more produced high production kind of the rise of the record companies takes place in, in the seventies um so i would I would agree with you there um and and that's missing right so I, I'm totally in agreement rap music did that right that next genre and now uh music like in my mind i haven't you know and I'm older now, so I'm not you know on the street you know let's go going to clubs and seeing what's coming out but the right. but the uh Doesn't seem to me that it's raw anymore. Coming out of a garage, it's always produced, you know. It's right, always sounds the same, right? Yeah, yeah, it's all sound like your
0: father. Hell, the rock and roll sounds the same now.
1: Yeah, the uh, you know, it's like uh, like country music to me. Like, if you listen to popular country music. It sounds like one just continuous song, right? Like mm-hmm. well, it sounds okay. Sounds fine. It's a one continuous song though. Right? It doesn't have uh uh it's not very uh raw or unique. Um so uh so, so I think in the early seventies you still had that with, you know, the rise of Zeppelin and, and the Who and right, you, right. Know, the, you know the Rolling Stones were still putting out great music and sure. although it's probably more more polished. You know, you have Billy Joel and Elton John and you know, it's just great music
0: coming so out. So who's your no, let's get to the brass test? Well, I have one last one. I think the closest thing to what's happening right now to a punk aesthetic or a rock and roll aesthetic is the music of TikTok. Maybe we'll reserve a whole a whole episode for that. But I think that's uh, that's what the kids are listening to. It's uh you know, we were the, the M T V Generation at some level, and right. remember the like a whole movie would be in a three-minute pop song. So you had to cut a lot quicker. I remember reading articles about how that's going to destroy people's minds because the cut, the scene cuts are so quick now on music videos. <laughs> but you go watch a TikTok video, and I know your kids probably watch TikTok. You know, you only have about a minute, but really the average view of a TikTok video is about 14 seconds. And so they got to get you got to get a whole you got a whole thought in in, in 14, 15 seconds. Most of it's to music, not all of it. Uh, but I, I got a little addicted to TikTok at the beginning of the year. My daughter sent me some videos, and then it's just awesome. You just sit there and scroll. I I've never uh, I,
1: I I don't have to I've never been on TikTok. Yeah. So you should. I have to, I'd it, have to po- it, polish up for the They would uh, f- it for it fill
0: up. 10 15 hours a day for you. If you have 10 or 15 hours a day to just blow, you should get TikTok. it'd be great, okay? All
1: right, um, I don't know if that's coming anytime soon, but
0: <laughs> all right, uh, all right, so let's get back to the question at hand Who's your number one artist from the 1970s?
1: Well, you know who that is for me, and, and I'll give some depth to it, so I right, you know I am a, a, a Kiss Army guy, so like, so Kiss. You know, what I like about Kiss, you know, this is a, a couple of guys initially, Gene and Paul, you know, they're, they're going for it. They meet each other in New York. They're kids. They don't really get along that well, but they both write songs, right, and mm-hmm. kind of have a, a writing respect for each other. This is probably 1971. Okay. And, uh, you know, Paul's like 18 years old and Gene's like 21 years old. And, and, they, uh, and they actually get a record deal. And the record company puts, um, you know, uh, studio um, musicians on the record and, and they walk away from the deal. They're like, screw it, we're not doing it. And that we t- quit. And they, uh, you know, they, they, you know, they see a, an ad for a drummer that says, hey, I'm willing to do anything to make it. And this is that time in New York where they had like, you know, this kind of glam rock was starting. There was like the New York Dolls, mm-hmm. kind of like men dressing up as as girls. And, uh, and that was kind of the local New York scene. And so when they talked to the drummer, Peter Chris, like, hey, man, like, you know, we don't, have, we're, we're looking to do something visually stimulating. We're not quite sure what it is yet. Like, would you wear a dress if you wanted to wear a dress? And he's like, yeah, whatever. I'll do whatever to make it. And, and they realized pretty quick they were too big and bulky to kind of pull off that glam thing. So they went, they went this whole black and white, you know, Hey, we're gonna be kind of dark, and they would have to go to S and M shops to buy leather outfits. You know, before it all started to become produced, and uh, they ran uh, they ran an ad in uh, the Village Voice looking for elite guitarists with flashing balls. And Ace Freely was just some poor kid at the Bronx that you know knew how to jam on a guitar, and and you know they interviewed and tried out a whole bunch of guitarists, some who went on to some level of success, but. They ended up with the four of them, and, you know, they, they went for it. They were completely broke. Even their first three albums didn't sell well, and their, um, they got a manager who was like a TV producer, hmm. Bill Coin, and he saw them, and he's like, if I don't get you a record deal in two weeks, you know, you know, you can walk away from me. But I'm only interested if you want to be the biggest band in the world. And so that's you know where this kind of the bigger stage show started developing, and they were losing so much money that uh, like there's this one story about Bill O'Coin had like forty thousand dollars due on his AMX, and they had absolutely no money. They're touring nonstop, super hardworking band. So I I put a lot of value in hard work, and you know preach hard work to my children. and and uh, so super hardworking band toured nonstop, really humped it you know, went all out, total, you know, totally went for it, right? They were, you know, not making money. It wasn't about money. It was about being the biggest band in the world. And they uh, decided, they were like, hey, man, we got to we gotta shake it up somehow. And, you know, they're like, we're going to do a double live album. And like, no one did live albums. Live albums never sold well. And like, you know, because people like the shows, but the studio albums... Or, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not gonna win you over by playing Kiss Destroyer. And we had Kiss Trust to Kill. Are you, like Are you kidding me, Vince? Right, so the uh, but the live shows were, were happening and there was an energy there and um, and then all of a sudden Kiss Alive went gold. Platinum, double platinum, triple platinum, and they're still young, right? So they're, you know, Paul Stanley is like 22 years old. Peter Criss was the it's oldest, crazy. like 26 years old, and all of a sudden they went from being dirt poor to being multimillionaires. And you know, you know, uh, as a, you know, a product of what I call the sex, drugs, and rock and roll age, right? They were, they were, um, you know, embodied, you know that that mindset you know all their songs were about getting laid and having fun and rocking and hard and guitar solos and hard drumming and you know screaming and yelling and and uh so they so, you know, it's kind of the story of what, what they were all about And then, you know, when they make it huge, then it goes weird, right? Because then they start, you know, the stage show gets over the top, and they start mm. doing a little bit of disco, and they do that movie, Dismissed the Phantom. And when all that kind of stuff started happening, the band was unwinding, right? So by the end of the 70s, 78, 79, the band kind of unwinds. And, and part of the award to the story of Gene and Paul, of continuing to go for it, is Paul never lets go of the vision. And this keeps the band going. 80s, 90s, 2000s. They made money three times over. Like right? you know, they made money, lost all their money, made money, lost all their money, and made money again, right? And just kept on doing it. And uh, you know, so that, that that's part of you know. It's kind of like hard rocking, You know, I think uh, people who are younger than me, you know, see Kiss as. You know, Kiss is on Scooby-Doo, right? And you know, right. I don't watch Scooby-Doo, and I don't want to. I'm, I'm a rock and roll guy, and I'm not like Scooby-Dooing it, right? So, uh, but the early Kiss was very raw, very uh, intense, and uh, in the early '70s, Kiss, Kiss Alive, Greatest Alive, Greatest Live album ever done.
0: Greatest I mean, Live album this. ever done. There's, that's your album of the decade.
1: Oh yeah, no question. Right. Been, I probably the best-selling live album ever. Could be. Could be.
0: Yeah. All right. So mine's slightly different. Yeah, for yourself. Yeah, let me cheer yours. (laughs) So as mentioned I love the the breaking of punk, Ramones, Sex Pistols. You can even trace it back to Velvet Underground, uh, television, Pink Flag. But I think the band that embodied the greatest aspect of that, that movement was the Clash. Uh, The Clash came in right on the heels of the Sex Pistols, and their first album is a classic punk album. It's just raw, fast, great songs. You can already see a little bit of a musicality, uh, a political outlook, um, biting lyrics, anger. Is
1: that, are they, should I stay or should I go now? Is that The Clash? (laughs) So
0: in 1979, they released what may be my number one album of all time, The Clash, London Calling. And in fact, on a technicality, Rolling Stone magazine in 1990, because it was released in the UK in December of 79, it was released in the US in January of 1980, they ranked The Clash's London Calling, an album released uh, officially in 1979 as the greatest album of the 1980s. Just to give you a sense of the, the, the critics' choice there. So that album, start to finish, not a bad song on it, wide variety of music, some reggae influences, which is kind of prevalent in the punk scene, which you see from the police kind of coming out of that same scene, some jazzy kind of things. Um, the Clash eventually played along a little bit with some hip-hop, They have some deep alternative kind of uh, rock music. But hit after hit after hit, that album is just amazing. The lead-off hit single from that album, also a unique story. It was added to the album after the artwork had already been completed, and so it's uncredited. It's not even listed in the track listing. It's Train in vain. Great song, very melodic. Uh, great, great groove. Great lyrics. Slash London College. Everybody should have that uh, in their vinyl collection. That's a great recommendation. And the and the poster or the the album cover is the bass player smashing his bass guitar on the stage live in front of an audience. And in the Cleveland, in the Rock and Roll Music Hall of Fame in Cleveland, they have that bass guitar mounted right there, all mangled strings hanging off it's amazing so i saw i was like can't believe it can't believe it so that's cool
1: you know these conversations do influence me uh you know going to throw it back to a few episodes ago when uh, we were talking to keith buckley who was a sound assistant sound engineer on midnight madness album and we started talking about uh, brad gillis as a guitarist and so, um, you know, I had mentioned that I loved his work. Ozzy Osbourne, after Randy Rhodes died, did a, a live album of all Black Sabbath songs. So like songs hmm. from the 70s, you know, and, and Brad Gillis played guitar on it. And he's a, he's, a, he's a guy that's like a big whammy bar guy. He bends nose. He's kind of very unusual style. Hmm. But I love his work on that Speak of the Devil album. So then, you know, I can't find any of my old CDs because it's so long ago. So I go to Apple Music, well, can't get Speak of the Devil on Apple Music. Go to Amazon Music, can't get Speak of the Devil on Amazon Music. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what's going on with Ozzy Conspiracy. and the Rice to the mm-hmm. album. So I went out and, and on Amazon, I ordered the uh, I ordered the CD. And go. it's like the only CD I've listened to in a couple of years. That I awesome. plugged the CD into my car just to listen to the, uh, the, the guitar sounds of uh, Brad Gillis, based upon our conversation. That's so, good. Yeah, that's- Cool. so i'll be i'll be checking out that clash album i you know i do like the clash and i do like punk rock i love the ramones i
0: mean
1: come on oh,
0: yeah it's yeah i have one other little tip for you i just watched a documentary called hired gun it's on prime oh yeah America. i've seen You've it seen that? yeah i love He's it got all yeah guys on. that's worth checking out all right let's get to yeah, culture yeah. corner you were going to bring up a little bit i think you want to talk this week about job descriptions so let's hear your Cultural corner for the week a little tip
1: yeah, so this is uh this credit all goes to Lou Adler, who is a, a recruiter extraordinaire, publisher, author, speaker, you know, very successful business guy, and and this is his creation, not mine, but I'll I'll share it with you. Um, he uh has brought forward this performance based job description model. Um, and he says he got there really by accident, and I think he did some research. He you know he mentions in his book that during the the Great Depression is kind of when the modern job description Hmm. was birthed, right? And everyone kind of, you know, across the world does job descriptions the same way. And when he first got into recruiting and was, you know, just young, he would ask people, well, what does this person need to do? Like, what are they going to be doing for you, right? And that led to this idea of this performance-based job description, where you take like the eight you know, six to eight most important accomplishments that need to be done Mm -hmm. in the next year and you form your job description around those accomplishments. Hey, you need to accomplish this in this role. You need to accomplish this in this role. And by three months in, you will have done this. And by six months in, you'll... Most people
0: make job descriptions based on characteristics or skills. Like, I want you to be smart. and I want you to know this skill set and this tool and... Mm -hmm. You're saying or how many or have this many
1: years of experience yeah. and so and so his, his, his thought and which completely makes sense on this is uh, the idea would be if you're reading the job description and you're looking at what needs to be accomplished and you're like this is not me, you self-select right. out Or if you read the job description and you're like I can do this, but you wouldn't be the normal character you may or the normal person to apply for the job you're getting you know these these applicants who may be these applicants who are, are risers right cuz they you know see this and they can demonstrate hey I can accomplish these things and so the job description is this basically based on hey these are the 6 to 8 things that you will have to accomplish in your one in this role if you can do these items we want to talk to you if you can't do them, not interested, right? right. And uh, and then it makes the interviewing very consistent because you're interviewing against explain to me how you're going to be able to do these six to eight things. Tell me what you're thinking. Tell me how you're going to get there, right? And yep. uh, and it really makes sense. Um, so uh, I was so impressed with the idea that my uh, wife is actually becoming certified in his uh, in kind of his concepts. Ah, so cool. uh, we're going through that process. Yes. Yeah, so shout out to Renee.
0: All right. Well, that was a great episode. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing how COVID return plays out in the marketplace. And we will talk to you guys next time. Uh, If always, you can get in touch with me on LinkedIn. Uh, Vince, you're also on LinkedIn, I think.
1: Yeah, I sure am. I I tell you, I'm feeling like we cheated the 70s. We had to have like six more episodes. You know, Pink, Pink Floyd, Alice Cooper. I mean, we haven't even... Yeah, we are scraped to surface on the 70s. All right.
0: Well, this is, uh, you know, they call it the the survey course. Over, the, overview. <laughs> the
1: overview. The overview. The high level.
0: All right. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. We'll talk to you Thanks. next time.
1: Thanks, Jeff. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Meet the New Bus with Vince Catanzaro and Jeff Niebuhr. Available on Apple Podcast and other streaming platforms. Please like and subscribe. Meet the New Boss is sponsored by Rene Vincent Executive Placement, LLC. Contact Jeff at jeff.nieber at icloud.com or find him on LinkedIn at jeffnieber. Contact Vince at vincent at renevincent.win or find him on LinkedIn at vincentcatanzaro. Bumper music provided by The Who and Budaphy. Additional engineering provided by Just-In-Time Recordings. All material 100% controlled by Vincent Catanzaro and Jeff Niebuhr. Unauthorized reproduction is prohibited by law. Meet the new bus.